Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, that can be found on page 729 of your pew Bibles. A passage well known to us, a passage, though being well known, is nevertheless that special, that awe-inspiring and great, as we see the picture of who this child to be born will be. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing. Father, we come before you to ask, as we've opened up your word, to give to us understanding, and as well to give to us receptive, open hearts, and especially hearts and eyes to see your grace and your power, and to see the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to feast once anew on the image of the one who has saved us, of our dear Savior, of our bridegroom, of our Lord, one who has taken on our very flesh and has become one of us to set us free, and yet who is a name above every name, whose name is glorious, and whose name is our very salvation. We pray that we would feast anew on that now. Amen. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus ends the reading of Isaiah 9, this beautiful segment of God's word, this beautiful text that proclaims a great light, a great light for those in darkness, for those thrust in darkness. We know that darkness is a scary thing, in our world, we deal with darkness, even the, just the absence of physical light, and we don't feel it that much. We have light switches that we turn on. We have lights glowing from every appliance in the home. We, we don't truly understand what darkness is. When there isn't an availability of light, when you rely on a flame or a fire or a match that must be struck and you're in a place where there aren't street lights and, and you don't just have that ready ability to see. And, and this is the image that God presents in Isaiah for what will happen, not only to the people, but also to the world, thrust into darkness. 
That's how chapter 8 ends. We didn't read chapter 8, but chapter 8 sets up Isaiah 9 and proclaims that there will be a coming darkness. But throughout it all, it, it, also, it also promises and, 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 and says there will be a light to come. Even in Isaiah 8, there was references to the Emmanuel of chapter 7. In chapter 8, verse 8, it had said that the promised land of God is the possession of this Emmanuel. In 8.8, that's what it's saying, that the very land of Israel, the very promised land, is Emmanuel's land. He owns it. And why would that bring a bit of promised light to those who are approaching this coming darkness? It's because he will come back. It's his land. He owns it. He will not utterly cast it off. It's his. As well as chapter 8, verse 10, it's, it's this Emmanuel who's the reason why all the nations won't actually triumph against the people. It is the God with us, Emmanuel. He will stand. And, and so you see intermixed with this threat and promise of coming darkness, promises of a light that will come as well. Chapter 8 ends in verses 16 to 22 with a warning, a warning to trust in this prophetic word, in the words that Isaiah himself is declaring to the people. He warns them not to trust in their, themselves, or in another word, not to turn to mediums, not to turn to, to others who would seek to lead them astray, to other spirits or to other gods, but to stand on the promise of God the promise of a child who would come. And that's what we come to in chapter 9. And our first point, a geography of comfort. A geography of comfort. Why would we say it that way? Well, read verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's this, what, what are these regions? Why, are, why is he referring to this land, to this geography? What does it matter? This land of gloom, as it even says, that, that this gloom and this darkness will be removed for this land. And why these tribes? There's a really clear reason. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, what is now known and what we know as the land of Galilee, was one that was often susceptible to Gentile influences. It was a land that had never, the tribes had never truly driven out the inhabitants there. So there were Gentiles always dwelling in it. It was a land that had been pressed up against by foreign nations, and so there was influence not only internally in the land, but, but from the, the neighboring nations that pressed against it. It was, a, in one sense, a mixed land, a Gentile land. But there's another reason that these tribes are mentioned. These tribes where they were positioned was first on the chopping block of invaders because of Many influences, according to the region and, and the, the, the scope of the land, it was here that nations would enter. You had the Mediterranean Sea on the west, you had the Sea of Galilee on the east, you had uh, the Arabian Desert that would force those invaders to come way to the north and come down through the south, and, and they would go to the land and through the land of Galilee, where there was abundant fresh water. It was something of a funnel into the promised land. So these tribes were the first to experience the darkness. In fact, it may even be that as Isaiah is making this prophecy, these tribes had already been conquered. This land had already been devoured. 
And if it hadn't yet, it was soon to be, just in these next few years. So the very, the very tip of entrance that an army would approach, they are the first to see this gloom removed. The darkness to which they are thrust, there is a light that is dawning, a geography of comfort. This land longest in darkness, longest in gloom, will be made glorious. And even the Gospels point to this truth. In Matthew 4, verse 12 and following, we read in the ministry of Jesus, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a geography of comfort because this land, the the entrance point, and the first to feel the, the wrath and darkness is the one to know in such a special way the very child that is promised in this text, the very beginning of light that is dawning. So much of Jesus' ministry was one performed in that very region, in that mixed region, a region that was was seen to be lesser than. It had this foreign influence. It was Galilee of the Gentiles. That's not something positive, you would say. Yet it is this very land that the Messiah comes and fulfills this promise. They see their gloom removed. There's also another reason, though, why these tribes are special, or, or we should rather say why they point to a greater truth. And that's that these were northern tribes, both of them. If there seemed to be a failed experiment or a failed plan of the Lord, if it seemed to be one, it would be the northern tribes. So dispersed, so dispossessed, that, that there, there didn't seem to be any, any bringing them back. They were gone. They hadn't retained themselves. They were spread to the four corners of the world. They were a nation. They were a kingdom that had walked away from the Lord. There were very few kings that had been faithful in the northern kingdom. Almost immediately, and in fact, immediately, it had turned away from the Lord. It had walked away. And it's, it's these tribes that are mentioned that they would see this darkness removed gloom removed. It becomes even an established truth in the Old Testament that both Israel and Judah will be reunited as one people in this time of restoration. We're not going to turn there, but we see that in texts like Jeremiah 3, 11 to 18, Jeremiah 33, verse 7, Ezekiel 37, 15 to 28. All these passages point to this new covenant to be made, not only with Judah, but with the house of Israel as well. These, these northern tribes scattered and spread. And it's as if they've been so dispersed in the Gentile world that when the Lord brings them back, he's bringing the world with them. And that's what he does. And so to Galilee of the Gentiles, there's a light that dawns. And we see the grace of the Lord. The Lord does not forget his people. He does not forget his promise. 
He does not forget it even to those who are thrust into deep darkness. He is faithful to those he saved. He is faithful to those he will call. He will never forget his people, though he scatter them, though he place them into darkness. This geography of comfort gives way to a great light, which is our second point, a great light. These people walking in darkness, these sinners oppressed, those guilty, those struck down, they have seen light. And we can put ourselves in that same category. Not only because we are ourselves, I'm assuming most of us, descendants of Gentiles, those who would not know this light, but as well from the very fact that we were sinners and are sinners outside of Christ. It is darkness there, utter darkness. It's no mistake that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of as the coming of light. It's spoken of that throughout Isaiah. It's spoken of that in the Gospels. Even Malachi describes him as the son of righteousness. That's the S-U-N son, a son that shines. He's the breaking in of this great light. Verse 3 describes what this light produces, what, what this coming one produces. It's great joy. It's the joy of harvest and even the joy of military victory. With Emmanuel's coming, with this child's coming, it's a bountiful and long-awaited harvest. The harvest was wealth to that day and age. The harvest was life to that day and age. They needed this food to survive, and, and it would bring with it that peace when the harvest was brought in and stored. Not only would the intense work of the harvest cease, but you had security. The harvest was in, it was there, provision was there. And so what does this mean? Well, well, what the Lord God brings in through this child is the harvest, is provision, is security, is peace. The harvest is gathered in, but it seems to be as well that there's a, a military victory implied here. And that's that second part of the verse, that the spoils... The spoils are even spread about, that, that it would seem it's not only just the harvest being brought in, but a victory being won, and that there's, there's riches and treasures that he brings about through his victory over his enemies. Verse 4, Jesus' coming is what breaks the yoke of slavery, what breaks the staff and rod of their oppression. And then see that phrase, God has broken as on the day of Midian. Well, what's the day of Midian? You remember back to Judges 6 and Judges 7, those two chapters. It's the call and the, the, the not reign, but the judge, Gideon. It's his time when he would judge Israel. And he fought against the Midianites. He fought against this great oppressor who was much stronger than Israel, was much stronger than their land. And when the Lord called Gideon at that time, he, he calls him a, a valiant man and warrior, but it's a bit of irony, it seems, because at the time, Gideon is hiding. He's hiding away, and he's least of his father's house. He's least of the land. And even when the Lord assures him of what will happen, he's not, he's not very confident, at least initially, in what will happen. And, and so this victory is, is first at the hands of one quite unlikely. But then, what's this victory as in the day of Midian? Well, you remember what happened. Gideon musters the army and the Lord says, it's too much. It's too great, lest you think you're the ones to accomplish it. Lest you think this victory is by your hand and not my own. He starts whittling away the numbers and they're left with finally those 300 men. 300 men against thousands. And then what does the Lord do? He arms them with torches and pitchers. Clay pots and trumpets. 
That's what you bring to a music festival. That's not what you bring to a war. Those aren't, those aren't weapons that will give you an edge. So this, this victory the Lord's promises, as in the day of Midian, is a victory that comes only by his hand. That's why you would point to Midian. It's, it's unlikely, it's one unlooked for, and it's one that the people, they couldn't bring about. Only God could. So just as he had delivered them in that day, through an unlikely man and unlikely means, the Lord brings a delivery again through an unlikely source, a child. A child, a Midian-like victory indeed. A victory that proclaims that it's by God's hand alone. That's the victory of Emmanuel. It's that same God, it's the same hand who delivers Verse 5 then describes how total the victory of Emmanuel is. Even the very clothes that are used for war are burned up and done away with. The boots are gone. The garments that were stained in the blood and the gore of what war was are burned. And so it, it, it's saying that, that there's been no capacity to continue war. War will be at an end because even the garments that would be used for war are burned and gone and done away with or cleansed. No capacity for war. It's, it's then what this Emmanuel brings in is the final war and victory to end all wars. The final end. And we come to this glorious representation and image of who this child will be in a fourfold name. That's our third point, a fourfold name. Verse 6 begins with that word for. And so it tells us, it's explaining the reason for all that comes before it. It's, it's explaining how these other verses can come about. Because it seems very unlikely. It seems very Midianite-like. How can there be deliverance? It is so unlikely. But, but what's the dawning of this light? What's the hope for these people to, who are and will be thrust into darkness? Because of a child. How can the final harvest come in? How can the final war be, be won? How can spoils be divided? A child comes. Unlikely. Can a child change these nation-sized dilemmas? And of course, the, the answer is, well, what's the nature of this child? Who is this son? Who is this child given? To be able to perform these things, to be able to accomplish them, he must be something. He must be someone indeed, right? The glory and victory that this child brings in, it's strange. But this child is it's not just any child, it's the child of destiny. It's the son not just of a king, not just of a Davidic king, but the king. And it says that the government of the world shall be upon his shoulder. On the shoulder of a child? Isn't that strange? That's the hope of the people, this child. And look at these names, and we'll go through each of them. First, this child will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. To look at, at that, you, you might just seem, oh, he's going to be a good counselor. Oh, it means so much more than that. Let's, let's look at both those words there. Wonderful first. 
Wonderful doesn't just imply he's good at it. We, we sort of use that term all the time. Oh, that was a wonderful piece of music, or that was a wonderful dinner. We just sort of say it that way. That's fine for, for our context, but that's not the, the way it's meaning here. It's not meaning that light and insignificant, that it's just good. No, to, the use of this word is bordering on supernatural. That's how it's used. It's, it's not just a wonderment of good. It's a wonderment of impossibility. It's like we, you can't fathom it. That's how it's used. It's, this is the word used in Genesis 18, verse 14, when old and barren Sarah is laughing, thinking, I cannot even have a child. That The way of a woman has passed from me. It's not even possible. And the Lord says, you will bear a son. And Sarah laughs. And then this is what God says, is anything too wonderful for me? Is anything too difficult or hard? That's the word used. It's that type of wonder. It's the same word used in Psalm 139, verse 6, when David is declaring the majesty of God, and, and he's, he's pro- proclaiming his majesty and knowledge of everything, of every day that David would live, and, and how the Lord knows every step he will take. And what does he say of this knowledge of what God has? He says, it's too wonderful for me. The knowledge of the Lord is too wonderful for me. It's utterly beyond him. Even in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, verse 29, Isaiah says that the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, is wonderful in counsel. That's what he says in 28, 29 of Isaiah. So clearly you start to see here this, this wonderful counselor is pointing you not to just this idea he's, he's going to be a good one, but that he's going to be a divine one. Great in counsel. So that's the wonder, but, but what about the counsel? What about that? How important is it for your king and ruler to be great in counsel? We're used to human rulers. They need a whole group of counselors for them to even be a good ruler. But, but this one to come is, is not one who needs good counsel. He is the good counsel. He is in no need of of wisdom. What this is saying is he's the one who has it all. He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in counsel. Every word that comes from his mouth is better than the words of the counselors, than the words of the wise men that would be around rulers. This king, this child, will have all the counsel and wisdom. This is who the people are looking for, God-like counsel. You can think of the benefit of this in Solomon. Remember, Solomon was given that choice. He says, ask of the Lord, ask what you would, would, be, would be given, and you'd give this gift to him. And Solomon had not asked for riches. Solomon had asked for wisdom. He asked for that, and, and the Lord blessed that, and it pleased the Lord that he had asked for that. And you see what his counsel and wisdom meant. It meant a solid rule and reign. He had nations coming to him. The queen of Sheba comes to him to ask his counsel, to ask his advice. And and it was a little picture, a little microcosm picture of what the people of God were to be, but especially of what Jesus is, that the nations would be brought in to receive his wisdom and his counsel. Because he's wondrous in counsel. We have plenty of examples of foolish rulers. Ignorant, and shall we just stay, say it, those who, who, who cannot rule, who have no wisdom. The need for a wonderful, wonderful counselor. That is what we need, and it means then don't doubt 
Don't, don't reject his words. Don't reject his wisdom and his counsel, for it's wondrous. It's, it's beyond us. It's divine. Second, it's mighty God, mighty God. It's the same phrase as used in Isaiah 10, 21, where it clearly refers to Yahweh the Lord. He is mighty God, this child. What more can you say to a declaration of this coming child that not only is he a wonderful counselor, he is mighty God, proof of his divinity in the Old Testament, proof of who he would be, mighty in power. It's one thing to have the wisdom. It's another thing to have the power to carry that out. And he has the supernatural power of God because he is God. This is as well how we link him to the Emmanuel promise of the God with us. He is mighty God. Calvin puts it well. He is therefore called the mighty God for the same reason that he was called Emmanuel. For if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. And that's the point. If he was just a man, we would go through this same cycle that Israel had been going through with their leaders and their rulers, but it's not that anymore. If we were just waiting for a man, our, our hope would be in vain, but we're not. They were waiting for mighty God. And then third, everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. What about that? How does that apply to to Christ? That's usually a term we would think of of the Father himself. So what is this conveying about the Son to come? Well, it's this image of Father. We could paraphrase it as one commentator does to say it means Father-like, eternally Father-like. And what that would mean then is not only is he wise and able and adept at his rule, he can counsel, he can make discernment, he can can look through the issues and find the right way, he knows the right way. Not only then is he mighty in power and able to carry that out, he is father-like to his people, eternal father, comfort. This balances out that power. If, if our ruler was only mighty God, we would still tremble and fear, but, but he's not just that to his people. He is mighty God, but everlasting Father, everlastingly Father-like, everlastingly comforting, tender, caring, in all their circumstances, in all their needs. And it is by the, the Father and the Trinity himself that he sends his Son to portray this love. The Son then is that, that caring, eternal love to the people. And fourth, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. I, Isaiah, when he says Prince of Peace, isn't just saying it's a psychological peace. That's what we, we look to so much. We just want our minds calmed. We just want peace in our minds. But this is a total peace, complete It means peace that comes through every way and in every place. It means it's the rule and reign of God's victory. Because tied to the idea of Hebrew shalom or Hebrew peace is victory. You can't have peace without victory. You can't have peace without accomplishing and conquering the enemies. Otherwise, there would be no peace to reign. But you think of the peace that, that occurred after the world wars and more World War II as World War, 
where one didn't have a long-lasting peace, and neither did World War II, but for sake of illustration, you see that, that the, those, those victory days was, was one that spelled peace. The war was at an end. The, the turmoil was ended. It's the victory of this mighty God, Father, who comes and reigns and brings about peace in every respect. Not only to the world, not only to your mind, to God and to the conflict between us and him and sin. He brings peace. Shalom. Peace presupposes the victory and it comes in his wake. What a glorious child. What a glorious son and how amazing that is. And, and how? How can this happen? What does the text say? How can this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's their assurance. Is that enough? Is that enough to the people? They're going to go through dark times. We went through lamentations. We know the darkness. It's going to last a long time. What's their assurance? How will they know this will be accomplished? How do you know that your faith will even lead you to heaven? How do you know that your faith isn't in vain? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty of armies will accomplish this. Our hope is in the character of God himself. And he's never failed. He's never failed to perform his promises. He's never failed to go to the unlikely northern tribes dispersed and bring them back. He's never failed to bring light to the darkness that he has promised to bring. He didn't fail in sending his son, this child, this Emmanuel, who shook the very fabric of the world when he came and changed its course because he is mighty God. It's the zeal of the Lord. It's his desire Another way to, to translate that, that zeal and desire is jealousy. He's jealous, God. Jealous for his people. He desires them with a heavenly desire. He's zealous for them. He will accomplish this, and that is what we hope. That is our hope. Verse 7 had said, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Very similar wording to what's said of the Son of Man who comes in Daniel 7. Of that eternal reign of this one to come to the ancient of days. It's also similar to another text, to Luke 1. Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The child of promise, the child of destiny. Now what do we do with this? How do you apply this text? Well, I would say, brothers and sisters, look at Christ very simple application, but what else is this text telling the people to do but to hope in this figure? To hope in our wonderful counselor, 
our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, the child who comes and is our hope, who is our assurance, who is the very zeal of the Lord who comes to, to, to fulfill the promises and save the people. Look to Jesus and look to it in every aspect of your life. Everything that's broken you see fixed here because he's the Prince of Peace, because he's the Mighty God, because he's the Perfect Counselor. Everything that's broken in your life won't remain that way. He's your hope. He's your hope to know that, that your faith isn't in vain because he has come. So look to Jesus. And look to him in your daily life. Why do you go to work and why do you get up every morning? It's because this child has come and he's your king. And your very activity and your very life is one in service to this king and in the power of this king. Look to Jesus. Look to him. Look to him as your comfort. That's what the people were called to do there. They, their lifeline to cling to through all the darkness and oppression was there is a child to come and hope in that. And we've seen him come, and what do we do then? Our comfort and our consolation is the child has come, and he's coming again, and hope in that. What breaks through the darkness of sin and suffering and curse and death? There is only one light that does it. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. Amen. Let's pray. Our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that often our thoughts of you are, are not as elevated as we know they ought to be. In fact, we can go through our life and, and not really think of, of these truths throughout the day. And we can find ourselves in anxiety and scared. We can find ourselves in search of sin to fulfill us in ways we know we should not. We can find ourselves doubting or depressed. We can find ourselves in hard places and in darkness because we, we haven't and don't always turn as we should to this glorious picture of who you are. You are the, the Son promised the one who breaks through the darkness. You are the one in whom is our only hope, and so we pray, Lord, help us hope in you. Help these promises to stand. They, they've stood the test of time, certainly. They were fulfilled already in part, and, and we await that full fulfillment. For the light, and the, and the light has dawned. The sun has risen. We only await the full shining of the day. And Father, then let us look up to that sun, even as we, we are living at times in a gloomy world. But help us to trust in you and in your zeal to accomplish this. Amen.